This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Few books can credibly claim to offer a way to save the world, but this one does. That's the eye-catching first sentence in the foreword to the book, A Bright Future, How Some Countries Have Solved Climate Change and the Rest Can Follow. The book focuses on nuclear energy and how it might be the best option to slow down the use of fossil fuels as well as ease admissions. The authors argue that a combination of nuclear and renewables is the path to follow to slow down climate change. Joshua Goldstein is a professor emeritus of international relations at American University. Stefan Quist is an engineer, scientist, and consultant to clean energy products who trained as a nuclear engineer. And they are authors of the book, A Bright Future, How Some Countries Have Solved Climate Change and the Rest Can Follow. Gentlemen, great to have you with us today. It's good to be with you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you. So, so Joshua, why the focus on nuclear energy? What was the driver there? Well, I grew up against nuclear power back in California in the 60s and 70s. And then I had children, and they convinced me that climate change was the big issue we should all look at. I'm an international relations, big global trends guy, so that fit into my interests. When I started to look at climate change, how can we really solve it? How can we actually leave a livable world for my children? Then uh, you have to do some math about how you get there. It's a huge undertaking. And although I had always been against nuclear power, I learned that you just about can't do it without nuclear power. Then I started to study nuclear power as well and how uh, Sweden had done just that. And that led to the book, and I found Stefan to coordinate with. So, Stefan, tell us your your interest on this aspect of looking at climate change. Yeah, sure. So I think one of the main principles that I like to, and I think most people like to employ when they're trying to solve a problem is to see if anyone else actually has solved it and, and or even partially solved it and what they did and how they did it. Uh, me being from Sweden, I, I know for, for the entire my lifespan, we've had a decarbonized energy grid, electricity grid. And so I just looked into the data as part of my research, what countries actually have clean electricity grids and how did they get there? How much did it cost? How long time did it take? Is this is this something that other countries could follow? And I think that's the one of the basis of the book that we, we wrote together. So when you, when you look at, at your home country, uh, Stefan, what has been the impact of going down this, this type of a path? Well, it's, it's been very fortunate for us. We basically had an option in the 70s of, of at that time, there wasn't really any cost-competitive uh, solar and wind to, to be offered. So we had basically two options other than nuclear, which was to try to build out even more hydroelectric power than we had. But the environmental groups were so against that, uh, disrupting the river flows, the remaining rivers that we had, so that was kind of a non-starter. And the other option was going a fossil fuel route. And Sweden doesn't have any fossil fuel resources. So basically, from an energy security supply uh, standpoint, Sweden chose to go down the nuclear path, and it's, it's served us very well. We have, as I said, a completely decarbonized electricity grid, uh, very low and stable electricity prices, basically since we did this. So it's, in that sense, it's been a successful model. And what we're trying to figure out now with this book and our work is could other countries follow this model? 
Josh, uh, one of the things you, you talk about also, uh, not only with uh, the, the potential greater use of, of nuclear energy, is a tie-in with renewables. Yes, well, the problem is so large, and we need so much clean energy uh, by the mid-century that we feel we should use everything we can. And that means build out as many renewables as we can, use as much hydroelectric power as we can, um, anything that'll work. But at the core, the reason we're focused on nuclear power in particular uh, is that it scales up much faster than anything else. So Germany's been trying to put in renewables uh, with great vigor, but when Sweden and France went to nuclear power, they put clean energy on the grid five times faster. So it means what we might be able to do worldwide in 30 years using the Swedish-French model could take us up to 150 years with the German model. We just don't have that kind of time. Has, has renewables, Stefan, been a, an element that, that Sweden has been able to, to, uh, to take advantage of? Yeah, sure. I mean, Sweden, as most countries, uh, built on hydroelectric power first. That was the first renewable source and first large-scale non-fossil uh, electricity source in Sweden, as it is in most countries, because it's cheap, it's extremely reliable, it's an excellent power source. So uh, the Swedish electricity system basically rests on two major legs, which is nuclear power and hydroelectric power. And today we've also, over the last few years, built out quite a significant wind energy park. So in that sense, it's it's not a nuclear system like, like, for instance, the French system, which is basically mainly nuclear. The Swedish system is a renewable plus nuclear in a kind of a nice synergy symbiosis uh, system. Joshua, when you think about nuclear energy here in the United States, a lot of people, if they're old enough, remember the days back in the 1970s and 1980s where nuclear was really starting to to, to pick up pace. And then, obviously, there have been, well, Three Mile Island obviously occurred here in the state of Pennsylvania. But, but what is the state of, of nuclear energy here in the United States right now? And what kind of buildup would we need to see in the next few years to be able to have it as the type of component you're talking about in this book? It's struggling right now because there's a lot of misunderstanding and misconceptions. Part of the problem is that Three Mile Island didn't actually hurt anybody, but it came right at the time that that movie, The China Syndrome, with Jane Fonda was in the theaters, and yeah. that was a nuclear disaster movie. People confused the two. Um, and Fukushima happened in the context of a massive, uh, epic natural disaster that killed almost 20,000 people, none of them from the radiation at Fukushima. But people, again, you, you confuse it with all the disaster. Now, Chernobyl's another story that really did kill people. Yeah. Um, but overall, if you look at 60 years of nuclear power, it's been 400 times as safe as coal. And it's by far the safest of the energy sources in terms of number of people killed or hurt per kilowatt hour generated. So there's a lot of misunderstanding. And then similarly, at the other end, the nuclear waste is quite misunderstood. People don't realize how minuscule the quantities are. Um, it, it, it's so much more concentrated than fossil fuels or anything else that uh, the, you could live your entire life with an American-style electricity use and all from nuclear power and generate waste that would fit in a soda can. I mean, it's really small amounts. Right now, we put them in dry casks out behind the nuclear plants, and they're sitting there um, safely. Nothing's really gone wrong with them, and they're certified safe for 100 years. 
And people say, what will happen after 100 years? Maybe we'll burn them in new designs of reactors that can right. use them as fuel. Maybe we'll put them underground. But that's the 100 years when we need to be solving climate change. So nothing's perfect, but nuclear has been struggling because people don't treat it normally the way you would anything else with costs and benefits. And, um, and, and yeah. so is there is there a level of innovation to try and build out nuclear for the next generation? And uh, what about the from the investment side? Uh, is there the want to put the money into into this type of energy right now? Well, there's a lot going on in uh, worldwide and, and some uh, quite a few startups in the United States also to try to kickstart this process. One of the problems financially is that a nuclear plant is very expensive, billions of dollars up front, and then it pays back over 60 to 80 years. That's hard to uh, get investment for in a fast-changing, deregulated market. Um, and another problem is that in the United States and Europe, we've been trying to build first-of-a-kind nuclear reactors uh, w- whose designs are not even fully finished when we start construction, and there have just been massive cost overruns. So it's very expensive. But by contrast, um, first contrast is Sweden and France uh, built nuclear reactors and have very cheap electricity. But more recently, South Korea has built the same design over and over again and brought the cost down. And nuclear power in South Korea is cheaper than coal or anything else uh, that's available. What we'd like to get to, and this is what some of the startups are working on, is a centrally built nuclear product, a, a reactor, Instead of being built on site, each one uniquely and very expensive, you'd build them centrally, more like a Boeing jetliner coming off the line, and then send them to where they're going. And if we can make that project work, Stefan and I think that uh, more than 100 nuclear reactors worldwide per year could come onto the grid, and it would just make a a big difference in reducing carbon emissions. So, Stefan, how challenging is it to try and put together a system like that to, to have it almost like a conveyor belt and, and bringing these systems out and moving them to the locations that they need to go? Uh, it is challenging, but we are seeing some uh, quite extraordinary advances lately, specifically in the U.S. with the Oregon-based, uh, well, I wouldn't call it a startup anymore, but the, the company New Scale, who's bringing forth a, a much smaller version of a conventional light water reactor, that could conceivably be built in, in basically in a factory and churned out eventually. So we're seeing a move towards this, but I should emphasize that even if we just built like we used to, so say like the United States built reactors in the 80s, just applying that rate today would decarbonize the UK, uh, U.S. electricity system by mid-century uh, if we normalize with the size of the economy. So just going back to what's already been proven possible in this country, and that's not one of the faster expansions that we've seen. But just going back to those rates, again, would basically decarbonize the, the U.S. electricity system. And now, of course, we have the added benefit of very cheap solar and wind yeah. to make that problem less severe. So it, uh, we are basically presenting a positive case here. Which this is imminently doable. And we have historical data to back up that we could do this if we just put our focus on it. Joshua Goldstein and uh, Stefan Quist are the authors of the book, A Bright Future, How Some Countries Have Solved Climate Change and the Rest Can Follow. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So, Stefan, is there the mindset around the globe 
to want to push. And you mentioned, obviously, France and, and Sweden and, and some countries. But is there a global mindset to really try and go down this road? Uh, I think it's it's becoming more and more well-known, these success stories. I think they, they haven't been well-known. Certainly, I grew up in Sweden never hearing about that we had done anything spectacular at all about this. Uh, basically, when I ran the numbers first and saw uh, that Sweden had built up low-carbon electricity faster than anyone in the nuclear program, that was an unknown, not a known fact, even in Sweden. So I think these these success stories are not very well known, but they're they're coming out there, and I think our book is helping to to bring that forth. I was in China a few years back, meeting with the Chinese National Academies of Science, and just presented what Sweden and France did, and and basically, you know, telling them that your expansion plans are not very, uh, you know, they should be much more ambitious than they are because we have seen that this can be done at a rate that, that's much faster than the plans were. And I think there's a convergence towards understanding that this could be done at a much higher rate than people are planning for right now. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Joshua, one of the big topics right now when you talk about uh, a climate change is the want to try and do carbon pricing. Uh, How would that impact energy and the issues of climate change in your mind if that was the approach by whether it be state governments or the federal government? It would really help because right now carbon from fossil fuels is polluting the atmosphere and causing climate change. And in addition, particulate matter from coal, for instance, goes into the air and kills tens of thousands of Americans every year. All those costs are not included in the price of the electricity. Uh, By contrast, nuclear power, we, we put aside money for waste management at the end of the plant's life and so forth, and those are included. But if you could bring in what those externalities, that is the costs that are outside of what we now pay for fossil fuels, and add them onto the price, then suddenly nuclear power becomes more competitive. Right now, the big issue in the United States is natural gas is plentiful and cheap. And the same companies that own nuclear plants also own uh, natural gas plants, generating plants. So for them, if natural gas is so cheap, and even though nuclear power is coming in less than five cents a kilowatt hour, but natural gas maybe three cents a kilowatt hour, then it's easier for them to just close down a nuclear plant ahead of its useful lifetime and put in more natural gas plants. That's fine for them. They make money. We get electricity, but then we're not reducing our carbon emissions. And you may have seen that carbon emissions went up by several percent last year in the United States. We're moving actually the wrong direction. We need to be dropping them fast. Well, I was going to say that, you know, companies would potentially have the option of if they are making a profit off of natural gas in the short term, then they could potentially, if they wanted to, put that money in investment into the nuclear. And you're also you're you're having to a degree uh, two sides of this uh, helping the the process in the short term. But eventually, maybe you can make that transition away from natural gas and 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 more towards nuclear. It's important to notice that historically nuclear power has succeeded best when governments are involved, when there's a concerted effort. And it's it's harder to do it for several reasons when everything's deregulated and the companies are left to pursue their own profits. Um, you know, 
know, without constraint. Uh, you, need a, you need an overall plan, and we need to be thinking about the big picture of carbon emissions. How do we drive them towards zero in just 30 years? That's going to involve an enormous amount of new clean energy around the world. And um, we should be mustering the resources of the society uh, to develop these new generation of designs, as well as um, deploying more of the old ones in order to get on top of the problem. I don't think it's just going to happen by itself. Um, the best answer, honestly, is to get nuclear power into this kind of production line system where costs come down with scale and get it cheaper than the fossil fuels. Then people will do it by themselves. And, you, you know, if you can do it without a carbon price, all the better. Um, because right now, and we haven't talked about this, but most of the energy growth in the world is happening in poorer countries. Sure. Places yeah. like India, Indonesia, Vietnam. That, and it's good. They want more energy. They need more energy. And it's bringing people out of poverty by the hundreds of millions. It's a wonderful thing. But they're doing it with fossil fuels now. So you can't just say you have to stop using fossil fuels, people in India, because, you know, we've already put more in the atmosphere than it can handle. You have to give them an alternative that's cheaper, that's practical. And nuclear power could be that if we handle it right. Stefan, your thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, the, the central point is that energy sources should pay the external costs that the society will, will bear these costs. But if even if that applied, that changes the economic picture, not just for nuclear, but also for the renewable sources. So it's a central point. It would be ideal if we could do without it, of course. But I think from a, from a total cost and even a moral standpoint, I think if you pollute and you kill people from, from your business activities, you should bear the cost of that. So I, I'm all for a carbon uh, tax and a fee that includes the external costs. And also that's part of the success story in my home countries. We have a very high price emitting carbon in, in Sweden, and that's also been a success factor. Joshua Goldstein and uh, Stefan Quist are the authors of the book, A Bright Future, How Some Countries Have Solved Climate Change and the Rest Can Follow. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. How much has the government in, in Sweden overseen the entire process? Because as was mentioned, there's an element of needing government when you're talking about nuclear, Stefan? Yeah, it's obviously hard to apply the the European like social democratic mindset to the US. Right. But yeah. In Sweden it was kind of a combined private industry and state run program. And in France it was basically just the state saying, now we're we going to do this. We're going to build a fleet of reactors to get us off oil, uh, to get us insulated from the changes in oil price and supply. And they just you know, pointed with their whole hand and did it. In Sweden, it was a bit more of a, a little bit of a private effort and, and a state-supported effort, uh, which might be actually more an applicable model for the U.S. Because I, I think, from my understanding of the U.S. economy and, and the relationship to capitalist principles, it might be hard to get a, a completely state-run project the, the way that France did it. Josh, you, you, you uh, give us your assessment on that? Yeah, I think I agree with Stefan. Um, we need uh, companies, the, the government, and everybody to get on board with it. Uh, I'm always struck with things like the Apollo program, where the United States said, we're going to put a man on the moon, 
within less than 10 years. And uh, we didn't have the technologies even to do that, but we mobilized them. And so um, mobilizing resources to accomplish big things is something we know how to do in the United States. And, And we're the country that innovates. So I believe that if we mobilize our resources, we get on the same page, we innovate, and we get over these fears that are really holding us back now, you know, fears that we have all out of proportion about nuclear power, that we really could do great things. And that, by the way, this is a great export project for the United States. If we design reactors that are usable around the world and that are cheaper than coal, um, that's, a good, that's a good job program for the United States. Gentlemen, thanks very much for your time today. Uh, good luck with the book and, and all the best. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks. There's a website if people want more information at brightfuturebook.com. Thanks for having us. Not a problem. Joshua Goldstein, Professor Emeritus of International Relations uh, at American University. Uh, Stefan Quist is uh, engineer, scientist, and consultant uh, joining us on the show. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 